Hello and welcome to our second audio lecture for Phil 2500, Introduction to Feminist Philosophy. Today we're going to be talking about Christine Overall's article, Trans Persons, Cisgender Persons and Gender Identity. Christine Overall is a professor, philosophy professor at Queen's University. She was actually my professor while I was uh, at Queen's. And the way that this lecture is going to go today is the first part around the first 20 minute or so uh, lecture is going to be a little background. So I'll talk a little bit about the terms sex and gender and how those, the kind of the some history of those terms in feminist debates. And then the second lecture will go through the article and if if there's time, hopefully conclude with just a little, some discussions or, or questions for you to think about uh, in relation to the article. And because the article's a little bit shorter, we're gonna have a little bit of a longer um, background in this first lecture. So let's get started. So the terms sex and gender mean different things to different feminist theory, theories and theorists, and neither of them are easy or straightforward to characterize. So these first two readings we've done, the Beauvoir and the overall articles, are focusing on kind of these ideas of sex and gender, and then we're going to hopefully kind of keep complicating these things as we go. So historically, the idea of this term sex has denoted human females or females and males, and this has been done on the basis of biological features or physiological features. So, for example, chromosomes, internal and external sex organs, hormones, and other physical features. Gender, on the other hand, has been taken to denote uh, women and men, and this has been seen to be based on social factors, so behavior, appearance, personality, these um, sorts of things. So we might wonder why, why even make this distinction? So uh, according to the um, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy in their article on feminist perspectives on sex and gender, one of the main feminist motivations for making this distinct this um, distinction between sex and gender is in order to respond to biological determinism. So biological determinism is the this idea or argument that biology is destiny. So for example, because men have the external genitalia of penises they're biologically destined to prefer sports over crafts or because females 
have clitorises, they're destined to be bad at math. And obviously those two examples are, you know, kind of silly, trite examples. Um, but biological determinism has a long history of being used to justify how things, not just how things are, um, say sexist social structures or racist social structures, but also how things ought to be. And biological determinism has a is a is a natural art, art style argument. So these things are natural, and so therefore they can't be changed. We shouldn't try to change them. And we might think about this point of biological determinism in um, in the context of one of Simone de Beauvoir's points that we read from the last article about historical events. So one of the things that Simone de Beauvoir argued was that in sexist oppression, because there's no historical moment where the hierarchy kind of was kicked off, the sexist hierarchy, that, um, that sexism has become naturalized. And we can think of biological determinism as one, um, one kind of way that sexism is natu naturalized to say, well, it's, a, it's just a natural, women's inferiority is a natural byproduct of their particular bodies. But, I mean, contrary to Beauvoir, we can think about other oppressive social structures like racism, where there has also been, where biological determinism has also been used. And, um, you know, racism is an oppressive structure where there is historical events that you can point to as being as really kind of kicking off these terrible social hierarchies. So this is just to say we might want to think critically about Beauvoir's point about the relationship between historical events um, and naturalism, because racism seems like an example where there are clear, there's a clear history of um, the cre the creation of this, these pro these horrible social hierarchies, but this this hasn't prevented people from making naturalistic arguments or biological deterministic arguments. Um, so, so, okay, so the main feminist motivation, or one feminist motivation in splitting sex and gender was in order to respond to biological determinism. So the response is that the commonly observed traits or these prescribed traits 
which make up what feminists are calling gender are not caused by biology but are culturally learned or acquired. So in this early discussion of sex and gender and feminism, sex was seen as biologically fixed, something that was more fixed, and gender often understood as socially constructed or just the result of kind of the social milieu. So that includes kind of nuclear families, homes, places where you grow up, and then also bigger, the, the larger social context or environment. So, I mean, when you're, maybe when you're watching your next Netflix show, um, keep an eye out for the, for this socialization, the way that stereotypes are enacted or performed in all kinds of environments, including, or all kinds of things, including uh, the shows we watch. So in this early space, sex is fixed. Gender is the result of social constructions. This we're, we're talking like kind of 1960s, 1970s. And feminism, and some feminists thought that feminism should aim to create a genderless, though not sexless, society. So you can think about this, uh, one way to think about this view is as the, what's called the coat rack view. So we have sexed bodies. We have bodies that have certain um, bi biologies. And then those sex bodies are like coat racks and they provide the site upon which gender is then donned, like our clothes, right? So gender is socially constructed. Gender differences are, are the results of cultural practices, social expectations, social myths, these things. Okay, well, why, why is that a problem? You know, so what? Well, one, one big problem is that within these kind of programs, within these gender programs, one thing that's socially encoded, one thing that's encoded in these programs is oppressive hierarchies. So sexism and racism and classism and so on. And I think many fem many feminists have, have argued that these are very harmful to us in big ways and small ways. So with Simone de Beauvoir, we talked a little bit about her, her idea of, of how these harm us. And that was that human beings are authentically or fully both subject and object, both essential and inessential. But what's happened is these programs have fixed women in one way, as object, as inessential, as other, and have fixed men in this in a way as well, as fixed subject 
always and only absolute essential. And Beauvoir's point is that this is harmful for, for us. This prevents us from fully realizing our authentic full selves. Um, I mean, we can think of lots of ways that small and big that, that these things are harmful. So, for example, part of the gender programming for black men in our thus one of the very harmful stereotypes that we have is that black men are violent or dangerous. So, for example, in a study where they flashed a white or a black face before participants had to identify an object, they found that if a black face was flashed before the object, people were more likely to identify that object as a weapon. And this happened with faces as with black faces as young as five years old. So this is why this programming is a problem. Because it encodes a lot of really negative, oppressive ideas. And these things run very deep in us. So, for example, when parents were asked to describe their 24-hour infant, they already used gender stereotypic language. So their 24-hour-old boys were strong, alert, coordinated, where the 24-hour girls were tiny, soft, and delicate. So let's think about some problems with this sex-gender distinction. So one thing we might want to ask is, well, is gender uniform? You know, so here we read a little, just the introduction to Beauvoir's book on the second sex. And that whole book is about a description of woman, of how one becomes woman throughout their lives. But is this a uniform, is this description a description of everyone's experience of woman or of every, is, do all men have the same experience of masculinity, of what, how they feel they must, are expected to behave as a man or the stereotypes um, of what it is for them to be a man. And we're going to think about this and keep talking about this more and more. Um, and it's one of the really big, important critiques of feminism of the last, you know, kind of hundred years of feminism is how white feminism is, right? So it's not the case. I mean, we'll, this will be a, the center of the next article about there are different stereotypes. There are different programs. And um, women and men are socially constructed in different ways depending on the particular woman or man that we're talking about. Um, so I just want to say a little bit about Judith Butler's view of performativity because Judith Butler is a very big um, feminist. 
So one of Judith Butler's ideas that gender is performative. So it's gender is not something that you are, but it's a doing. Gender is about performing, about acting certain things. Um, and one important point that Butler has made is that sex is also socially constructed. So here we're getting closer to Overall's argument that both sex and gender are socially constructed. And once we have this idea, so, okay, let's say, I'll say a little bit more about why Butler argues sex is also socially constructed. So her argument is not that our bodies themselves are socially constructed. So the idea is not that if we got rid of the social construction of bodies that we would, you know, turn into a pile of mush or something. The idea is that our concepts of sex for example, that there are two and only two, that those two are associated with stable biological characteristics. Um, for Butler, the idea that this idea that biological bodies can be a material foundation on which gender is constructed, and then for Butler, this causes the construction of these bodies as if they did provide that material foundation. Or things for Butler like activities that we engage in that makes it seem as if sex is naturally come in twos, that female and male are objective features of the world, that it could not have been otherwise, that sex is natural in a way that makes it fixed, that it must be constructed in the way that we've constructed it, that there are two, that those two have particular, um, particular biological markers that are consistent and stable across those two groups. For Butler, all this stuff is also socially constructed. So we we see this in Overall's article, right, where she talks about the historical, the history of sex definitions, of how sex has been understood. So that there was a time where there we thought there was only one sex, not two. And that the different bodies were just different expressions of this same sex. And of course, like before we knew anything about chromosomes um, or hormones, sex definitions would have nothing to do with chromosomes or hormones. Or so Butler's point is um, look. In really, in really significant ways, sex is also socially constructed. 
So we might want to think, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about this at the end of the next lecture, but we might want to think about if both of these things are socially constructed, how different are they? Are, are they still different? Is it useful to think about them as different things? Um, do they end up blending together? So I'll just finish, I'll just wrap up by saying one last thing about social construction. So sometimes when you hear people talk about social construction, they, they seem to think that because something is socially constructed, it's not real. And that's not true. So think about, for example, the legal system. So the legal system is a social construct. We, as a group of human beings, um, I mean, I guess we didn't, we don't all, we didn't all equally participate in the creation of the legal system, but it's something that we invented. We invented prisons, the prison system. We invented the court system. We invented judges and lawyers and we wrote you know rules of pr procedure that you have to that if you're the appellant that your your documents have to come in a in a folder that has a specific color um all these things are social constructions right they're made up they could have been otherwise there's nothing um there's nothing kind of in the world that forces these to be the case, you know. So for example, a flower needs, biologically needs the sun, at least for now. Maybe that will change. But, um, but the, the social, our criminal system, our legal system is a social construction. But this doesn't mean that it's not real. Right? This doesn't mean that prisons aren't real. Of course, they're real. So th this idea that things are socially constructed doesn't mean then they're real. And we might think that um, you know gender is not going to be real in the same way that, say, a prison is real, but also doesn't mean that it's uh, nothing at all. And... Um, so I just want to finish with one thing from last class. There, I just wanted to point out a, um, a dis there was a discussion in Beauvoir about intersex people, and I just want to say uh, explicitly that it was incredibly dated. And um, yeah, that's it. And I'll see you in a little bit for part two. Okay, bye. Welcome to part two of our Christine overall lecture. Uh, so this is week two, class one, for Philosophy 2500, Introduction to Feminist Philosophy. And in this lecture, we're gonna be just going through Christine Overall's article, Trans Persons, Cisgender Persons, and Gender Identities. So the article starts by listing three assumptions about sex and gender that overall argues most people make. First, that a person's sex is fixed and invariant. 
two, that gender is constant, although there are some variations in gender display that may be recognized and permanent. And third, that a person's gender is congruent or same as the person's sex at birth. And importantly, overall points out that these assumptions are not just held as descriptions. So we can think of um, we can think of some things, some some descriptions that we give as being purely descriptive. So for example, my water bottle is black. This is a pure description. But we can also think of descriptions as having what philosophers called call a normative value. So this is more about um, something being not just a description, but in the description, what you're saying is also that something is good or bad. So I might say one is very thin, and this is not just a pure description, but carries um, carries kind of ethical an ethical judgment, a value judgment. So, you know, I oh she looks so thin these days is not just me describing someone, but approving or implying that this is a this is a positive thing. This is good. This is how it ought to be. Um, so overall, says that these these assumptions that a person's sex is fixed and invariant, that a person's gender is constant over time, and that a person's gender matches their their sex at birth, their presumed sex at birth, that these things have a, this normative dimension. They're, this is also seen not just, it's not just saying how the world is, but it's saying how the world ought to be. These assumptions are describing healthy, normal things. And um, overall is going to going to question this, these normative assumptions. So overall it gives us some helpful definitions at the start of this article. One is a cisgendered person. So a cisgendered person is someone whose gender identity and gender presentation are conventionally congruent or conventionally match with the sex assigned at birth, which is usually based on external genitalia. And a trans person is someone whose gender identity and, and also possibly gender presentation is not conventionally congruent with the individual's assigned sex at birth. So overall point, points out that trans persons violate some or all of these assumptions. And she says because of this, that there, that some people believe that trans this makes trans persons very different from cisgendered persons, and this uh, this assumption of extreme difference between cisgender and trans person is what 
overall is arguing against in this article. And overall begins by saying a few things that she does not want to do in this article. So she says she doesn't want to say that all trans persons or all cisgendered persons are alike. She also is not saying that there is no significant difference between trans persons and cis persons, or that the social and political contexts are the same for both trans and cis persons. She's not saying that the social and political contexts are the same for both trans and cis persons. She doesn't want to speak for trans persons. She doesn't want to conflate trans persons with stereotypical male or and female, and she doesn't want to make trans identities a matter of medical illness. What she does want to do, she, she says, is to think about her own relationship, um, her own cisgenderedness, and deliberately reject the idea that cisgenderism is the default and she wants in this article to show from, from through thinking about her own cisgenderedness and the relationship that she has as a cis woman to sex and gender, from thinking about that experience, she wants to, to suggest that there are significant general similarities between trans and cisgendered persons with respect to how sex and gender operate in our lives. So contrary to some of the theorists and um, that we were talking about in the first lecture, and maybe, um, maybe more contrary to kind of older feminism, overall in this article is arguing that both sex and gender are social identities. And overall, very helpfully gives us a definition of a social identity. So for her, a social identity is a shared understanding of who an individual is that is derived from the individual's membership in a group category. So social identity means that there is a widespread, a shared understanding of who somebody is because that individual is seen to be a member of some particular group. And that group is understood to have a bunch of shared, stable characteristics. So first, overall talks about gender as a social identity. So she makes a, a point that I think is, is really interesting about gender being socially compulsory. She says there are two, only two recognized and approved gender choices in North American culture, man or woman. And that, that choosing, identifying and presenting with one of these categories is compulsory. 
And um, she goes on to kind of complicate that a little bit when she talks about some, that there's room for playing and um, that there's some room for creativity in these gender choices. But this, this echoes something that we talked about in the Beauvoir lecture about the, about the cost, about the high social cost of um, not being easily identifiable as one of these compulsory categories. So she goes on to say, to talk then about sex as a, a social identity. So she says, while gender is clearly a social identity, it is often thought that sex is thoroughly biological or natural, something like that. So as opposed to being uh, socially constructed. And she says this is a mistake. So like, like Butler, um, like we talked about Butler's ideas as well, arguing that sex, sex is also a social construction here overall uses the language of sex as a social identity. So she makes some of the same kind of points that there's no ahistorical, a-cultural concept of sex. So she argues, look, in sports competitions, it seems like what's important for determining sex, we've decided, is chromosomes or maybe hormone levels, like levels of testosterone. And then historically, we have times where we don't, we haven't defined sex as being two biological sexes, but only one. Um, like we were talking about earlier, we can think about, you know, lots of times in human history where nobody even knew about chromosomes or hormones or uh, uteruses, uteruses, and uh sex would have had a different, would have been defined very differently. And that might have changed membership, right? That might have changed who went in what group. So overall, his point is that, look, there's also social construction involved in sex. So the next thing that overall talks about are two kinds of social identities. So this is acquired social identity and aspirational social identity. Acquired social identities, overall argues, are notable personal characteristics that have been permanently ascribed or earned and so require no further action in order to be maintained. So she says, for example, being a birth mother is an acquired identity. Once you give birth to kids, you just are a birth mother. This is a personal characteristic that is just yours forever. You don't need to do anything to maintain that um, part of your identity, that characteristic. An aspirational identity, on the other hand, is a notable personal characteristic that must be maintained and reinforced through ongoing action. So she gives the example of being an artist. So over, overall says that be, you must be an artist in order to keep being an artist. That 
you can't just make a painting once and then say, oh, from now on, I'm just, an I will always be an artist. So she overall goes on to argue that both gender, so first that gender is an aspirational identity rather than an acquired identity. So overall argues that gender is never complete, it's never finished, that following Butler, gender is something that must be continually performed. It's not a fixed characteristic. It's never something we're finished achieving. And it's an identity that can easily be called into question if not maintained. So in this, because of this, gender is an aspirational identity. It's something that we have to keep performing in order for it to be part of our um, part of who, of who we are. And um, one thing that, one important claim that overall makes in this section is she argues um, that determining our gender is something that we have first per person authority about, authority over. And she says that this is not an epistemic claim. So this isn't about um, me having more knowledge about my gender than you do. This isn't me saying, oh, I get to decide because I know something that you don't. This is a moral claim. So that we have first per person authority to, to determine our gender because it's just immoral for someone else to impose this on a functioning autonomous human being. So Beauvoir, or sorry, overall points out that we should assume that any assignment of gender to infants is just kind of like a holding place. It's just provisional until the, ch the child can choose themselves. So, um, I mean, one thing that's fun to think about in this context are so-called gender reveal parties that are very popular. And if you think about these parties in the context of the gender-sex distinction that we've been making, these parties are actually not gender reveals, right? If, um, or if they're very complicated gender <laughs> reveals or something. But maybe more accurately, they should be called sex reveals since they're just about um, seeing the external genitalia of an infant. And when you think about that, there's something very odd about them, isn't there? That we have a we throw a party to tell our friends about the external genitalia of an infant. All right, but back to overall. So now, now we get to overall's main thesis. So she wants to say, she wants to show that with respect to sex and gender identities, trans persons and cisgendered persons are similar in a number of ways. And she lists four specific ways. So first, that immersion in a system of compulsory gender is something that we share. 
So both trans persons and cisgendered persons find themselves deeply immersed in a social system that makes gender choice compulsory. Um, she says that both cisgender and transgender persons may seek surgery in order to perform their gender identity. Although she's clear, she clearly points out that the conditions, requirement, and criteria of access for these two groups is not the same. So there's a number of hurdles that you have to go through in order to seek in order for trans people to seek surgery in order to perform their gender identity. But there are no hurdles for cisgendered people um, who are seeking surgery in order to perform their gender identity. So overall gives us some examples of, um, you know, surgeries like breast augmentation, or breast implants, or um, surgeries that change the look of women's um, external genitalia because it's seen as your gender apparently better. So let's go on to the second way that she says trans persons and cis persons are similar. So this is about constraints and opportunities. So basically this section overall argues that Look, because both cis and trans persons are immersed in this world that uh, makes gender compulsory, both cis and trans persons are constrained by this regime. Um, their, their gender aspirations are constrained. They, it's very difficult to aspire to perform gender in some ways and really easy to aspire to perform gender in other ways and overall also points out that both cis persons and trans persons um, find opportunities to go beyond conformity. Um, the third way that overall argues cis persons and trans persons are similar is dangers and overalls clear that this is also a way in which cis persons and trans persons are importantly different because obviously in our in our social world trans people are much more likely to be at risk of harm compared to cis persons for the for the sake of gender aspirations but overall says look Depending on the context, depending on the degree of non-conformativity, non the political and social conditions that someone's in, both cis and trans people can face um, significant danger, even death, for not conforming to gender stereotypes. And the fourth... The fourth point she makes is maybe the, the one that's a little, th that's the most confusing, which is about continuity and discontinuity. So overall says, look, it's, it seems like we have this idea that a cisgendered person's um, gender characteristics 
their their aspirational gender identity is continuous over time. There's a continuity to that in a way that a trans person's gender aspiration isn't continuous, that there's a discontinuity. And she says, this just isn't true. Trans people can have, there can be continuity in the gender and the aspirational gender identity of trans people and there can be discontinuity in the gender aspirations of cis persons. So she says, look, for lots of people, this is the beauty of feminism, that feminist thought has changed their gender aspirations. So she says, you know, that many women, their lives were profoundly changed by feminism, the, the gender that they aspire to um, perform, their gender performance was changed through feminist thought. Um, so the last section is she talks about an, a possible objection, which is about the biological influences uh, on gender identity. So the so she considers this idea that being trans is biological in a way that being cis is not, which um, she just says, look, it's not, it's not true. We're all embodied. And if, if one experience of gender is biological, it seems really odd to say that the other is not given that we're, we're all going to be kind of hormonal meat sacks. We can't get away from, from being in our bodies. And I think there's kind of an interesting parallel in this argument between um, trans people being embodied in a way that supposedly delegitimizes their being um, and cis people are not seen as embodied in a way that delegitimizes their being. And Beauvoir's point about this same kind of thinking with regards to women and, and men, that men, even though men are embodied, their bodies don't seem to matter. Well, women being in bodies has been taken to delegitimize um, them in all kinds of ways. So Beauvoir, sorry, overall finishes by saying, both trans and cis persons are the products of gender socialization, while at the same time they must be recognized as agents, not mere patients in the expression of their gender aspiration. Cisgenderism should not be considered the default human condition, for they are engaging in gender aspirational activities, gender performance, in ways that are very similar to trans persons. Maybe, and, and overall's hope is that this thinking about these things lessens the othering of trans persons by cis persons. So I just want to wrap up this discussion with uh, a question, leaving you with a question. So 
in these first two articles we've talked about, we've thought and talked about the distinction between sex and gender, but this has gotten complicated, hopefully. I, I mean, I think it's gotten complicated. They both seem now to be socially constructed. Obviously, they're really tangled up with one another, but also seem separate in ways. So um, I just want to ask, you know, do you still think they're different from one another? Are you convinced about this idea of social construction? Um, do you think there's useful reasons to distinguish them? Do you think maybe there's useful reasons to collapse the distinction and talk about one thing? Um, and then I also just want to make one point. Sometimes when we talk about, when we were thinking about the way that our, our gender performance is socially constructed, so, I mean, I have long hair. Why do I have long hair? I mean, a big reason is because Women are just told. It just seems like the thing I'm supposed to do, right? And sometimes when you're thinking about these things, it can feel like now you have to reject all these traits. To be woke means to be a woman with short hair or a man with long hair, a man that wears pink, a woman that wears blue, that you have to kind of, that the woke reaction is to reject femininity if you're a woman and reject masculinity as a man. But I just want to encourage more thought about this because just re just rejecting things also is a way that we continue to be kind of controlled by the script. So not doing things because it's in the script just another way to be controlled by that script. So hating pink because I was told to love pink seems equally as as scripted as liking pink because I was told to like pink. And I'll leave it at that and um, see you in a few days for our next lecture. Okay, bye.